So you may have noticed that as we move through our days at the retreat here, uh, we keep coming back to this uh, central teaching, the central theme of the Four Noble Truths taught by the Buddha. So that first noble truth of dukkha, that we can't always get what we want, so we suffer. The second noble truth of the cause of dukkha, that there is a cause, and it's our endless craving to get what we want. The third noble truth, that there's an end to suffering, a cessation of dukkha, that it is possible to let go of craving and to be free from suffering. And the fourth noble truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering, which has been walked by many, many people over the centuries, over the millennia, and that we're walking here in our practice. The teaching on the four noble truths captures the essence of the Buddha's discovery, what he discovered for himself on his own path to freedom from suffering, which solved his problem And we can read about those teachings, we can hear about them here and other talks. We can come to understand them, to believe them, to have faith in those Four Noble Truths, that they make sense. But until we see for ourselves, in our own experience, the truth of the Four Noble Truths, that teaching is not really of much practical use to us in terms of reducing our own suffering, solving our own problem. For that to happen, we have to really get these Four Noble Truths, to see them in a direct way, an immediate way, a very deeply personal way, so that they really sink into our hearts and minds, so that they become internalized as part of what we really know, know in our bones, know in ourselves, know in the core of our very being. We often compare this with the way in which we know the law of gravity. So there's a few of us here that might know uh, kind of the science and the mathematics behind kind of the modern understanding of the laws of gravitational attraction, you know, the various theories and equations that describe that phenomena. But all of us know that if we drop a spoon, it goes down. (laughs) You know, on that level, we all get it. We know that it's not going to go up. We know that it's not going to zoom across the room and out the window. It will go down. And we don't have to think about that. We don't have to remember it. That's not something that we have to analyze every time we drop something. It's something that we've observed so many times, over and over again, in all sorts of circumstances, that it's in our bones. It's an instinctive kind of understanding. So as my toddler's hand is pushing his plate closer and closer (laughs) to the edge of the table, you know, I don't have to think about it. I know which direction it's headed. Uh, And he knows too, you know, even even at two years of age, you know, that's something he's already worked out for himself. Those of us who have uh, spent time around babies, you know, you may remember, have noticed that around a certain age, uh, there's this universal stage of development that all of us go through, learning about this phenomena of gravity, this truth of gravity. And it happens pretty early on, you know, usually within the first year. It's pretty amazing uh, how soon it happens and how how universal it is, the way that it happens. So there's that stage of development when just everything gets dropped. You know, baby's favorite game is dropsy. Drop it and watch mom or dad pick it up or whoever's around that they can con into it, you know, especially at mealtime. The high chair is the perfect laboratory for this experimentation. You know, so the spoon goes overboard. Someone picks it up and gives it back. Goes overboard again. Baby watches, you know. Pick it up again. Baby drops it again. Watches, you know. Or the peas go overboard, you know. Plop. Baby watches, you know. And then another one and another one. And we tear our hair out, you know, wishing that we could find a way to put an end to this game, which for us, you know, is somewhat tedious. But it's really not just a game. You know, this is vital research that the babies are doing. Babies are really great experimental scientists. They really are. They need to see over and over and over again what happens. They need to see the cause and effect until they really get it. They really get it in their little bones that this is how things work. This is the truth of things. And this is really 
you know, <laughs> exactly the same process that we're going through here. Same kind of process. The process that we call mindfulness practice, that we call vipassana, insight. Insight is the process by which we really get the Four Noble Truths, by which they go from just theory to instinct, from an intellectual description of philosophy to personal knowledge, by which they go from something that we have to reflect on and remember, remind ourselves of, to something that we just know without a doubt in our bones, in our cells, so that we can go through life without constantly falling into that hole in the sidewalk, (laughs) maybe even find another street to walk down. And as we go through this process of insight, it can be helpful at times to have some understanding of how it unfolds, or even of just what is actually meant by insight in the very particular sense that we use it here. So that's what I want to speak some about tonight, is this process of insight. And I'd like to start with, um, whenever I give this talk, I like to give a little disclaimer <laughs> that you know what I say tonight might be something that's not yet within your direct experience, not something that you can directly relate to from what you've seen going on in your own body and mind. Uh, and that's just fine. Uh, this talk tonight, it's really um, perfectly okay to just ignore everything that I say. This is all kind of optional materia, material. Or maybe we can just hold it as a koan, you know, like it doesn't make sense now, but you know, maybe at some point it will, it will start to make sense. As with any Dharma talk, um, it's really great if we can take away just one or two things, really, you know, just that, that are kind of relevant to our practice and what's going on for us right now. And there'll be plenty of other opportunities to fill in the other pieces because really, you know, we just talk about the same stuff here over and over again anyway. So once upon a time, in the time of the Buddha, there was a wandering ascetic called Bahia of the Bark Cloth, uh, so named uh, presumably after his preferred type of apparel, <laughs> which was popular back in uh, those times. And he was one of these kind of many unaffiliated spiritual seekers wandering around India at that time, uh, much as today still. If you go to India, you still find a lot of people wandering around in bark cloth. And he was practicing very sincerely, just living very simply, doing devotional practices, cultivating concentration practices. And his mind had really become quite clear, quite collected. He was very peaceful. And he even thought that maybe he might be an arahant. Uh, The kind of the ordinary people around him uh, noticed his very serene manner and were very impressed with him. And they would bring him offerings and uh, you know, ask for uh, a spiritual discourse. And, you know, he thought, well, who knows, maybe I am an arhat. But he wasn't quite sure. So one day, a former relative of Bahia's who had died recently and had been reborn as a deva in the celestial realms, the he- heavenly realms, was passing through the area where Bahia was kind of hanging out and practicing and came upon him as he was reflecting on his spiritual path and kind of musing about where he might be and whether he was fully enlightened and that sort of thing. And the deva, uh, noticing these thoughts going through Bahia's mind, out of compassion, appeared in a visible form and approached him. And let him know kind of as gently as she could that, well, you know, actually, he wasn't really an arahant yet. And uh, actually, he didn't even have the slightest inkling of true wisdom yet. But, she told him, there was a Buddha in the world at this time, a fully enlightened being who could answer all of his questions and clear everything up for him. And she told him where he could currently find the Buddha, where the Buddha was uh, residing at that time, which was about a few days away uh, by foot. So as we might imagine, this made quite an impression on Bahia, who had not had any conversation with the deva before, you know, let alone one that was a former relative. And uh, he, you know, he thanked the steva and uh, was really filled with a deep longing and sense of urgency to speak with this Buddha, this fully enlightened teacher. So he set out immediately, you know, even though it was kind of the end of the day, walking towards where uh, the deva had told him he could find the Buddha. 
traveling by day and by night without stopping. You know, so great was his sense of urgency to receive the teachings of the Buddha. And eventually he did find the Buddha, who was, um, at that time, it was, it was morning, and the Buddha was in the midst of his alms round with all of his uh, retinue of monks that were residing with him. And he didn't really think it was the right time to be giving teachings. And normally the Dharma uh, teachings are offered in the latter part of the day, after we're all done with eating and all that kind of thing, and things are a little bit settled. But Bahia was just so on fire with a sense of urgency to know the truth, to hear what this Buddha had to say, uh, that he kept asking the Buddha for teaching. And in the end, the Buddha finally relented and gave him a very short, pithy teaching. And this is what he said. Bahia, you should train yourself in this way. In the seen is only what is seen. In the heard is only what is heard. In the sensed is only what is sensed. And the cognized is only what is cognized. This is how you should train yourself, Bahia. When for you there is only what is seen in the seen, only what is heard in the heard, only what is sensed in the sensed, only what is cognized in the cognized, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. And when you are not with that, then, Bahia, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then, Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. And it's said that through this very brief, uh, albeit rather cryptic, teaching, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was immediately freed from all suffering, and Bahia became one of the arahants, a fully enlightened being. In fact, later on, after this event, uh, the Buddha singled out Bahia as, as the, the one student that he had that had grasped the Dharma most quickly, the fastest, fastest time, shortest time. So the Buddha turned and went on his way and continued with his alms round. And Bahia you know, turned and went on his way, uh, now fully enlightened without any problems. <laughs> And it's further said that just a short distance down the road, so just a few minutes after this exchange, uh, Bahia was gored and killed by a runaway cow, uh, which is something you find happening in the suttas uh, not more than once. <laughs> it happens a number of times. Uh, you know, giving, I must say, some validation to Bahia's sense of urgency in receiving the teachings. You know. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> So I want to talk about the first part of the Buddha's teaching to Bahia, those training instructions that he gave him, saying that he should train himself in this way, in the seen is only what is seen, in the heard is only what is heard, in the sensed is only what is sensed, in the cognized is only what is cognized. This is how you should train yourself, Bahia. So that part of it may sound somewhat familiar to you, hopefully. Hopefully it sounds somewhat familiar, you know, because this is essentially how we're instructing you guys. You know, this is where it comes from out of these sources. We didn't just make it up. So we tell you, you know, when you see something, just be aware that seeing is happening and the seeing is just the seeing. When you hear something, just be aware that hearing is happening. When you feel something in the body, just be aware that feeling is happening. When you think something, all this cognizing of the mind, when there's mental activity, just be aware of that mental activity. These are the very same instructions that the Buddha would give to his students back in the day. And over and over again in his teaching also, the Buddha was always instructing his students to break down their experience into their component parts like this, the seen, the heard, the felt, the cognized, in different ways. And to just see each of those parts for what it is, just see it as it is. Examining the different pieces of, of this puzzle that we call me, that's made up of all these different strands. And we could think of this, you know, breaking down, examining each part in turn as one definition of vipassana, or insight, which that word vipassana literally means seeing things differently, seeing things in a different way in a radically different way than what we're used to, how we're used to seeing ourselves, how we're used to thinking of ourselves. 
So the Buddha repeatedly instructed us, and we're repeating this instruction to you, to break it all down, you know, break down the body, break down the mind, look at the building blocks that make them up, honestly, clearly. So why do we do that? The key to answering that question of why is in the second part of the Buddha's teaching to Bahia. This part that says, when for you there is only what is seen in the seen, only what is heard in the heard, only what is sensed in the sensed, only what is cognized in the cognized, then you will not be with that, and when you are not with that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then you will be neither here, nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. So the meaning of that passage (laughs) may not be immediately clear. But all of these rather cryptic statements about you know, where Bahia may or may not be, um, are really just pointing to the dispelling, the, the breaking through of our mistaken sense of our own identity, our mistaken sense of what we are, our mistaken sense of our, our existence. Pointing to this fact that we don't really exist in the way that we usually think we do. Not that we don't exist at all. We do have an existence. There is something going on here but just that we don't exist in the way that we think we do. That when we look closely and carefully and repeatedly at our experience over time, when we really start to clearly and fully see all those building blocks that are making it up, then we'll come to know in a very convincing way that there is nothing else there. There is nothing else to our experience. There really is just what is seen in the scene. There really is only just what is sensed, what is cognized, what is heard. Just that, just those experiences, just as they are. And that there's no person, no personality, no self, no soul, no being, or whatever you want to call it, any kind of core, any kind of substance, any kind of existence, lasting existence within all of that. Within within it, or in it, or around them, or through them, or between them, or however you want to phrase that. All that set of kind of cryptic phrases. This is the realization of what the Buddha called uh, anatta, which we often translate as no self, or non-self, impersonality, emptiness. Another one of the core teachings of the Dharma. That experience is impersonal. Uh, There's not really a me who's doing it or experiencing it. And as the Buddha said, it's just in realizing this, just in coming to, to understand this, to see this for ourselves, that we find the end of suffering. That all of our difficulty in life, all of our struggle, all of our dukkha, uh, really comes from this mistaken understanding of what we are, from thinking that we exist in this way that we don't really. That fundamental misunderstanding about ourselves, about existence, is what the Buddha called ignorance or delusion. So again, this may or may not make make a certain amount of logical or intuitive sense to us at this point in our practice. Um, and again, it's entirely fine if that's the case, you know, wherever we might fall on that spectrum of understanding or not understanding, believing or not believing. You know, however we relate to this, this theory, this teaching of no self, anatta, at this point in time is perfectly fine. Because again, what we're doing in our practice is investigating. We're investigating this theory. This is one of the things that we're gathering data about. You know, does insight actually reduce suffering? Do we actually come to a point of seeing this for ourselves? As Mark said a couple of nights ago, you know, the Buddha made this very famous statement that I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and its end. So we're here to see, does this practice, does this understanding lead us to less suffering, to greater peace in our lives? So how do we actually do that? How do we come to experience insight for ourselves? this breaking down or breaking up or breaking through of that mistaken sense of who we are, what we are. You know, we could sit up here and just give you guys the instruction, okay, you know, sit quietly, walk quietly, and uh, try to penetrate your mistaken sense of your own identity. (laughs) 
but we don't do that <laughs> for good reason. You know, what can we what can we do with that? We can't do anything with that kind of high level instruction, even though it does encapsulate the point of what's going on here. So the Buddha was very skillful. You know, he's an excellent teacher. This is said to be one of the the beautiful qualities of the Buddha in the traditional reflection. Uh, on the great qualities of the Buddha is that he was an, an, an unexcelled teacher, unsurpassed teacher. So he came up with all these really skillful tools. He told us to break it down into manageable bite-sized pieces, you know, to take it in manageable chunks, to notice the breath, to notice bodily sensations, to notice when we feel pleasure and pain, to notice our thoughts, to notice our emotions, you know, and so on. He had lots of really uh, insightful schemes for how to uh, carve up this thing that we call our life, this thing that we call ourselves. And that we can do. That we can do. We are doing it. We can learn bit by bit to tease out the various elements of our experience. That's part of the skill that we're cultivating while we're here. You know, we can just listen to the meditation instructions, try to follow them as best we can. You know, just a breath. You know, just a moment of pain. Just, you know, one more obsessive thought train <laughs> and waking up from it. Just doing our best to feel the, what we call the bare experience of all of that. Just to be with the actual sensation, the actual phenomena in the body or the mind. And at times for all of us, you know, this exercise feels mm, contrived, you know, kind of artificial, um, a little disingenuous on some level. Um, especially until we get some personal insight, some personal verification of this teaching. Because we just so much do feel like me. You know, that feeling really is there. That's a real feeling that we have, that this is me. Here I am. So we may hear these teachings about, you know, we don't really exist in the way that we think we do, and it's all empty, and there's no self. Um, you know, or how, about how we're just really made up of all these little bits and pieces and building blocks of uh, impersonal phenomena. About how, if we see through all that, we can get some relief from the, just the drudgery and the oppression of it all. And maybe we get that intellectually to some extent, um, or intuitively to a certain degree. But then when we close our eyes and we just feel the breath come and go, or we feel the pain in the body, or we notice the mind getting up to whatever it's getting up to, then we still really just mostly feel like me, you know? I'm breathing, I'm sitting, I'm listening, I'm thinking. So if that's how we're experiencing things, then we're not really getting this teaching on the deeper level, on the level of insight, on the transformative level. Which again, is perfectly okay. <laughs> that's how it is right now. But at some point, if we just keep going, <laughs> if we're just willing to keep going, then eventually we do have a moment of actual insight. You know, maybe just the briefest moment. Insight is what happens in our minds, what happens in our experiences that allows us to really take it in, that causes us to really get it, to really get this truth. So that's when these teachings start to go beyond just ideas, beyond just the intellectual, philosophical level go beyond even the kind of intuitive sense that many of us have that brings us here, that, that there's something to it, that it makes sense to us, that it feels right. It's really a fundamental shift in the way that we're experiencing all of this, the way that we're perceiving it. And this is vipassana. This is insight. This is how we gain genuine wisdom in the sense that the Buddha talked about it. So we might ask ourselves, you know, why is it so difficult to see this? Why is it so difficult to see the stream of experience, all those little bits and pieces? You know, if it's really true, if this teaching is really true, then why is it so hard to see that this is all just a collection of, you know, different little bits and pieces of experience? Why do we feel so much like me? Why is that feeling there if this is really the truth? Shouldn't it be more obvious? <laughs> Shouldn't everybody already know this if this, is, if this is such a universal truth, such a deep truth? And the basic reason why this truth eludes us is that we fall into ignorance, as the Buddha talked about, and that our minds are conditioned, evolved really, in a very powerful way you know, over uh, the whole history of the human race to um, mush together 
all of the various phenomena that are happening. That's the technical term, mushing together. <laughs> That's how I think of it. You know, there's a, the, the Buddhist psychology gets very deep, but basically it's just this mushing together that happens. You know, we mush all of these different, very brief, very subtle experiences together into uh, much larger, uh, compa very compact uh, sets of experience that we then see as a single experience. So all of those amalgams, all of those constructions uh, are what we get used to tuning into. So they're what we get used to, to thinking of as reality. And we rarely notice the building blocks we really notice the smaller pieces. Or if we do notice them, we don't usually pay much attention to them because on the higher level, the level of interpretation on all the mushing together, they don't really count for much. They're not very significant. And so we just mostly miss this level of our lives. You know, After a certain point in our development, we just miss this level of our lives as this ongoing stream of mental and physical experiences. One of the key functions of mind that's involved in all of the uh, mushing together is called perception. And perception is that function of mind that remembers and recognizes familiar experiences so that we don't have to be constantly figuring out the same things over and over again. You know, everything is not constantly new to us. And this is really oh, an excellent quality of mind to have. You know, this is very convenient. So, you know, when we get into bed at night and go to sleep, if we've got a partner, they're next to us, and we know who they are. And then we wake up the next morning, they're still there, we still know who they are. You know, this is very convenient. When the faculty of perception is impaired, you know, as many of us have a chance to see with, you know, maybe aging parents that are experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that, or if we know somebody that's had a brain injury due to, to an accident or something, um, it tends to be a really big problem. You know, it makes life really hard when, we, when that faculty of perception is not operating uh, at its full power, its full strength. So it's not at all that we want to stop perception or even suspend it. And in fact, we can't. Uh, in the Buddhist system of psychology, it's said that perception is what's called a universal element of consciousness, which means that at any moment that we're receiving some kind of sensory stimulus, either through the body or through the mind, perception is there right along with it, figuring it out, recognizing it, or trying its best to recognize it, categorizing, telling us what, what's happening. But because this happens so quickly and so automatically, and it's so ubiquitous, it's so continuous, and has been throughout you know, most or possibly all of our lives to some degree from very early on, we usually just completely miss the fact that perception is happening. And, the, and that perception, the conceptual labeling, the interpreting, the recognizing, the generalizing of our experience, that too gets all mushed together with the experience, the sense experience itself, into what appears to be just this one you know, single, compact, unified experience that we call breathing, or we call knee pain, or we call thinking. So I want to offer now um, a very deep, very profound Dharma teaching. So, you know, prepare yourselves. This could be the moment. This could be, be your Bahia moment, you know, when it all kind of breaks through. Got it? <laughs> so how long did it take for your mind to tell you what this was? You know, could you even tell? Could you even see it happening? You know, it's just so automatic. That's the point of this. I'll save this one for later. <laughs> it just jumps in so quickly. You know, we can't even pick up on it usually. Um, the Buddha had a slightly different version of this teaching that was a little bit more poetic, so you have a, a second chance to try it. <laughs> this is the difference between the Buddha and me. <laughs> so it's the same thing, you know, how long is it, does it take? 
for the mind to, to kick in and name flower, you know, or maybe lotus, you know, if you know what that is. So the name, the idea for, you know, what all these things are is what we call nama, which is a Pali word that comes from the same root as the English word name. It's about naming, recognizing, labeling. So nama refers to the whole mental dimension of experience, the thoughts, the ideas, the feelings, everything that we can experience and know through the mind is nama, falls into the, the realm of nama. The shapes and colors themselves, the seeing of those colors and patterns, uh, everything that we can take in through the physical senses is what we call rupa or matter. The physical material part of experience, that whole realm of experience. So rupa is everything that we can know through the body, through the senses that we have in this physical organism. Let's see, I've got one more of these visual aids. This one might be a little bit different. What do you think? (laughs) I'm actually not sure what this is myself. (laughs) It's something I found in the staff room. I know it involves... (laughs) So you can see what your perception does with this. You know, it involves rope. It involves wood. Beyond that, you know, who knows? So this can be an interesting experience when we encounter something that's not so familiar. And we may come up against this in our practice here. You know, This is something that some of us run into, that something comes along, we don't know quite what it is. So that can actually be a really interesting point in uh, our practice to, to play with, seeing that, that faculty of perception, see the mind kind of spinning its gears, trying to find a place for this experience and what we already know, trying to place it within our intellectual framework of what's already known, what's familiar. So sometimes we can catch the mind at action with that. I can see this now um, going on with my daughter, who's just learning how to read. You know, for most of us, we're literate enough that, you know, we look at printed text and the meaning is just automatically there. You know, like take the, the sign over here at the wall. You know, you look at it and the meaning of it is just automatically there, right along with the experience of seeing the, the red light and the particular shapes. So again, it's an experience where it's so automatic, it's hard to separate it out from the bare experience, that perception. But with my daughter now, she's just kind of learning phonics, learning to sound out words. So you know, when she looks at something like that, she has to sound out the eh, 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 and remember which sound goes with each letter and, and how exactly they combine, which in the English language is often quite mysterious. Um, So you can see those little wheels spinning in her head. And sometimes we can catch that going on for us, too, if we encounter something that's new, something that's unfamiliar. Some of you have been coming in and reporting that you don't know what's going on, you know, that you can tell that there's something present, you know, often something in the mind, but maybe in the body, some mental state, some uh, feeling, and we can't quite tell what it is. Perception doesn't kick in. You know, it's trying, and that can often be uncomfortable when perception is trying, but can't quite get there. And it may not be that there's anything too unusual going on. In fact, that's probably the case. But because we're seeing it at a very different level from the point of view of kind of the heightened mindfulness, the heightened concentration that we cultivate here, um, perception doesn't pick up on that experience as something familiar. It looks different because it's being seen from a different perspective through a different filter. So in a way, we may have to, to relearn our experience, just ordinary things like the body and the mind. We have to relearn how those look from this different perspective of practice. So perception and sense stimulus get all mixed up together in our minds. And we don't actually see that they're two separate and distinct strands of experience. And from there, you know, we move very quickly onto what we call proliferation, <laughs> papancha, the, you know, adding on layer after layer of ideas, opinions, interpretations, stories about the experience. 
And, you know, we've all seen very vividly here how that goes. You know, we jump on that train of ideas and off we go into that a world where that is reality. Very soon we're just far, far away from the actual experience of what's actually going on in the body, in the mind, in the nama, in the rupa. So this is another important place where equanimity comes into our practice. You know, we begin by cultivating awareness, building mindfulness, building concentration, that ability to just connect with what's happening in the present moment. But until equanimity begins to come into play to some degree, um, it will be difficult to clearly see those, all those different components of our experience, just as they are. Until equanimity gains some momentum, we tend to find ourselves in a kind of uncomfortable, uncomfortable place that, that, again, many of you are experiencing, where we're aware of what's happening in the present moment. We are here. We're not lost off in some story. We are in the present moment, you know, noticing what's happening. But we can't really see clearly what's happening. You know, it's like we're here, but it's a little bit fuzzy. So we're still seeing what's going on through kind of a, a veil of reactivity, even, even if it's just very subtle. Reactivity, as Kamala spoke about, being the, the enemy, the far enemy of uh, equanimity. And that reactivity keeps us from being able to clearly see, fully see, those different stands of nama and rupa that are going on. And as we've mentioned many times, you know, again, this is also completely fine. You know, this is not something that we need to, to act, actively try to change. It's also a part of this process. This is part of the path that we move along towards insight. So we don't have to, to try to force the equanimity or to try to manufacture it. When we're in this kind of place in practice, our job is just to continue to show up, just continue to try to be as aware as we can, as best we can, in just whatever way things are appearing at that time. And it's just that steadfast effort in and of itself that will gradually lead us to greater equanimity. That's why we're always you know, asking you about you know, how are you responding to that? How are you reacting to that? How do you feel about that? What's the reaction of the mind? That it's just through recognizing these filters that may be on our awareness that our equanimity will deepen. Our reactivity to what we're noticing when we're aware tends to run in two basic directions. Uh, You know, on the one hand, we have catastrophizing to some extent, kind of the doom and gloom filter on noticing things. On the other side, we have what might be called uh, the romanticizing filter, you know, seeing everything through rose-colored glasses. So we may notice something that's going on in our experience and then respond by getting, you know, bummed out about it, getting upset about it to some degree or another, even if it's just very subtle. On the other you know, side of the spectrum, we may respond to something that we notice by getting kind of elated about it, getting excited, feeling joy, taking delight. But that's not actually the instruction that the Buddha gave. You know, again, if we go back to those instructions that he gave to Bahia, you know, he didn't say, uh, and the scene is only what is seen. You know, make sure you notice what's bad about that. <laughs> Or in the herd is only what's heard, you know, make sure you notice how beautiful that is. You know, the instruction was, he gave was, you know, in the scene is just the scene. And the herd is just the herd, you know, period. End of story. Just leaving it at that as much as possible. And this instruction, you know, just in and of itself, uh, is just suffused with an attitude of equanimity, that matter-of-factness, that straightforwardness. The instruction to just see things as they are. You know, in the scene is just the scene. In the herd is just the herd. In the felt is just the felt. It's that kind of balanced, matter-of-fact awareness that we're moving towards in our practice. And if, you know, at any time we're in a different place, we're not in that place, it's just very simple matter-of-fact awareness, then the practice is then just to notice that, to notice what's happening that's not equanimity. (coughs) then when equanimity does get stronger, we'll be able to be aware of the nama and the rupa, the mental and physical components of experience, without that intervening veil of reactivity. We'll be able to touch them directly, just as they are. 
And this is really the first point of entry into the realm of insight. And it has a name in the traditional teachings. It's called Nama Rupa Paricheda Jnana. Nama Rupa Paricheda Jnana. <laughs> Pali can be a little bit of a mouthful at times. They like compound words. But so, so if we break this down, then we can see what the meaning is. You know, there's the nama, the whole realm of mental experience. Uh, there's the rupa, the whole realm of physical experience. There's this word paricheda, which has a sense of uh, defining, differentiating, discerning. And then there's this word jnana, which comes up a lot in the teachings, which means wisdom or knowledge, understanding. So if you take this term all together, it's the knowledge of mental and physical phenomena, the knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena just as they are, that differentiates them, that sees them clearly. This entry point into insight is also sometimes called uh, diti vasudhi, purification of view. Diti is that word that means view or understanding. Because when we can see the, those different strands of nama and rupa just as they are directly, then it clears up our confusion about what's actually happening in the present moment. It purifies our view, our viewpoint, kind of like the windshield wipers on a car on a rainy day, so that we can accurately see just what's going on, just in that very matter-of-fact, equanimous way. And again, this is not in any way an intellectual understanding or insight. It's really a visceral, felt sense of, yeah, this is just what's really here. This is what it is. These, sta these strands of physical experience, these strands of mental experience. And it's very clear, experientially, directly, in the present moment, and not philosophically, in, if we think about it, that this is really all that's happening. And from within that perspective of, of insight, then our ordinary sense of ourselves does fall away. That's when things shift. You know, we just feel a breath. We just feel a sensation in the body. We just notice a thought or emotion passing through the mind. You know, nothing that we haven't noticed hundreds, thousands of times before. But the mind connects with it all in a very different way. And we really just feel the bare experience without the confusion, without the mushing together without uh, the perception covering over what's going on. And it may be even just only for the briefest moment. You know, often it is just a moment when we kind of break free and can see all of this in this way. But it's a very important moment because that's the moment in which we really start to get it, that this is really all there is here. This is really all that's going on. You know, and the seen is just the seen, and the heard is just the heard. And the sensed is just the sensed, and the cognized is just the cognized. So here's another little exercise that I like to do. And uh, you can just stay however you're, se you're seated. This is not a, a deep meditation, but just a little bit of contemplation. So just to check out your hand, you know, wherever it is, you know, if you need to put it a little further out to see it, that's fine. Just to look at your hand. And just to take in that visual experience. So noticing the shape. You know, there's a certain shape around the base where it joins the wrist. A certain shape where it goes out to the thumb, around to each of the fingers. Maybe noticing the shape of the fingernails. There's variations in the color. So there's places maybe in the, the creases around the joints, the knuckles, where it gets darker. Different little patterns there. There's maybe patterns of light, lighter, darker areas around the nails. So just taking all of that in. And then keeping the hand just exactly as it is, closing the eyes and now feeling the hand from within the flesh. Maybe some sense of temperature, areas that are warmer, maybe some cooler areas around the surface. Maybe some sense of heaviness 
or lightness in different areas, pressure, tension, maybe some tingling, vibration going through. So just taking all of that in. And then you can open the eyes again. And just reflecting for yourself. So those two experiences that we just had, the experience of looking at the hand and the experience of feeling the hand, are those two things the same or different? What does your own experience tell you? From the perspective of the insight into nama and rupa, insight into physical and mental phenomena, it's very clear that these are not the same thing. They're different. In the scene, there's just the scene. There's just that experience of noticing shapes, noticing colors, noticing patterns. That's one thing. It happens in the visual plane, in the realm of everything that we take in through the eye door. And then, you know, on the other hand, so to speak, <laughs> in the sensed is just the sensed. And that experience of actually feeling the sensations in the flesh, that's a different experience. It happens in a completely different plane, in the tactile plane, the realm of everything that we can feel in that, that sensory kind of tactile way, physical sensations. So these are two distinct and different strands of experience, related, obviously, but different, distinct. So we can go a little deeper with this too. So again, uh, just looking at your hand, wherever it might be, Taking in that visual input, again, seeing the shapes, colors, patterns. And as you look at that visual image, using our skillful means of noting, so putting a little note on it. So looking, seeing the visual image, and noting hand. Hand, hand, hand. Just putting that label on that experience as you notice what you're seeing. So deliberately arousing that faculty of perception that recognizes, names what this is. And then again, closing the eyes and feeling the hand. Going back to that array of sensations within that particular part of our geography. What does that hand feel like? And again, applying that noting, that faculty of perception. So noting hand, 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 as we actually feel the sensations of the hand. And again, opening the eyes and reflecting. Is that name, hand, is that idea of hand the same thing as this thing that we see? <laughs> is it the same thing as this thing that we feel? And again, from the perspective of this level of insight into Nama Rupa, it's very clear that they're not. You know, the physical experiences, the seeing, the, the tactile sense is one thing that happens in the plane of rupa, materiality. And the mental experience, that naming, recognizing, perceiving, is nama, that happens in the mental realm of experience. You know, so again, these are related. There are reasons why we link these up. But when we're in that place of seeing through things through the level of insight into nama and rupa, it's very clear that these are distinct separate experiences. They each happen within their own realm, within their own plane. So we may start at times to feel this in our practice, just as we're sitting, you know, very likely without even noticing that this is what's going on. You know, so maybe we're sitting and following the breath, maybe we're noting, you know, in, out, or however we, we place a note on that. And suddenly it's just so clear, you know, the feeling of the breath is one thing, that's happening in the realm of the tactile sense. And that label that we're putting on it is something else. That's something the mind is generating. That's nama. 
this is something we become aware of, that these are two distinct components of experience, two distinct strands. Or maybe we're out walking, you know, doing the walking meditation, and that inner narrator is kind of giving the blow by blow on what's going on. Okay, now she's lifting, and, you know, the foot's moving forward, and there's tension, and now it's dropping, and we can feel the ground, you know, if any of you get that. (laughs) And that's just kind of going on. We're walking, we're noticing, and all of a sudden it just becomes so clear. You know, the sensations of the walking in the body are one thing. That's rupa, you know, even though we may not call it that, and it may not know to call it that. And the sensation and the experience in the mind, that narrator, the narration that's running, that's another thing. That's a mental uh, process that's going on. That's, that's nama. So this is how we're aware of things when the insight into nama and rupa is active. You know, it's really not anything so uh, earth-shattering, not anything so remarkable. But this is the entry point into the realm of insight. Once we can see clearly what the building blocks of experience are, then we can begin to see the deeper deeper truths about their nature that we've been talking about, their deeper characteristics, the lawfulness that links one experience to the next as that stream of experience rolls along, the breathtaking impermanence, the uncontrollability of all of it, the inability of the stream of experience to really satisfy us in any lasting way. All of these deeper insights become accessible only when we can connect with nama and rupa, just as they are, the bare experience. So this is insight. This is how it unfolds. I want to say a little bit also just about kind of the other side of the discussion, which is what insight is not in the very particular sense that we mean it here. And we do use that word in a very particular, somewhat technical sense here. Insight into the sen- in the sense of seeing through our mistaken understanding, seeing through our delusion, seeing through our ignorance, seeing what we really are, what really makes us up. So seeing all of this is what we might call insight with a capital I, you know, the big insight. So in that sense, insight doesn't just refer to kind of anything and everything that we might realize in the course of being on retreat here. And the fact is that for most of us, we do realize all sorts of stuff, you know, in the course of our practice, in the course of a period of retreat, about ourselves, about our conditioning, our past history, our issues, um, about others and their history, their conditioning, their issues. just about human nature and about life and the world in general. You know, all of which can be really helpful to living a a healthier, more skillful, more uh, satisfied life, but aren't actually insight, that insight with a capital I, you know, in the sense that we use it here. I remember um, very vividly the first three-month retreat that I sat here many years ago, Um, and that time at that point, I was in kind of a transition in my life. I had uh, left my engineering work and was taking a little bit of a sabbatical to uh, spend some time in retreat, do some traveling, kind of uh, get some things done that I wanted to do before I settled down and got married to my now husband. And, um, you know, before I went into the three-month retreat, we had started uh, planning and preparations for our wedding, which we were going to have after I was done with this period of sabbatical. And um, as it turned out, my husband-to-be uh, and my parents uh, had somewhat different ideas about what we ought to be doing with the wedding. You know, the expression that if you can survive the wedding, then the marriage is fine. <laughs> you can survive the marriage. So there was, there was a certain amount of conflict going on. You know, so while I was here on retreat, uh, you know, not talking to anybody, not calling home, not checking in on how the negotiations were going. You know, a lot of my uh, obsessive thinking would kind of go down this track. This was one of my top ten, probably one of my top two. And, um, you know, I had a lot of mixed feelings about it all. I was kind of caught in the middle. You know, I sort of wanted to please everybody. You know, I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to please my fiancé. I wanted to please myself. Um, but I also wasn't, you know, exactly sure what I wanted. Um, you know, and this was obviously about more than just the wedding. It was really about kind of grappling with this turning point in my life where my roles were changing. You're going to change dramatically, you know, moving from being primarily a daughter to being, you know, having my main role be that of a partner, 
uh, coming to be more of an independent, autonomous adult in the world. Um, and with hindsight, I'm so deeply grateful that I was able to do a period of retreat at that kind of crossroads in my life, you know, as many of you are. Um, I got a lot of clarity out of it, a lot of insight, kind of that insight with a little eye into just what were my true thoughts, my true feelings, my true needs. Um, and all of that was tremendously helpful, you know, not just with the wedding, which obviously turned out fine, um, but just with proceeding on with my life from that point, you know, from navigating these changes that I was going through. So all very helpful, but again, none of that was really insight with a capital I. So I don't want to in any way, you know, disrespect um, the psychological and personal insights and understanding that can come out of a period of retreat like this. Sometimes that's the most important thing that's going on for us. Sometimes it's a very important part of what's going on for us. But it's just really helpful to the process of what we're doing here to have that understanding, to be clear that there's different things that happen here, that there is kind of the insight with a little eye that goes on, and there's also the possibility of the insight with a big eye, just so that we don't lose sight of uh, what our larger aspiration is, what our deeper aspiration is, what the greater potential of this practice is, so that we aren't content to settle just for some of the benefits that are available to us. I also want to say a little bit about um, concentration and the role of concentration here. You know, there's some really um, wild and crazy experiences that can come up here on retreat in a period of intensive concentration. Because this practice, even though we're concentrating on mindfulness and awareness here, the fact is that just through being here in this very still and quiet environment and um, putting all this effort into, concent- into directing the mind, a lot of concentration does build. And that can lead to um, very distinctive, very unusual states of mind from, you know, maybe just slightly altered states of mind to really uh, radically different ways of experiencing things, really dramatic experiences. And it can happen that, you know, if this comes up for us, if this arises in our practice, then we might mistake one of these kinds of concentration-related experiences uh, for insight, for the insight with a big eye. These kinds of experiences of strong concentration can, they can feel very good, very pleasant. Um, they can feel very unusual, very special, uh, or both. Often they actually feel better than insight, than the experience of insight, which can be somewhat ho-hum, you know, at least at the beginning, in the sense that they can have much stronger pleasant feelings, be much more kind of compelling than just the, the simple experience of insight. But the thing is that they aren't, in and of themselves, insight or wisdom. They may come along with with insight. They may be a great support for it. There's no question that concentration plays a really important role uh, on this path. That's part of the Eightfold Path. That's one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. But just kind of in and of themselves, these these sort of wacky experiences, you know, they come, they go, they are what they are. But that's just sort of it. That's just one of these things that happens. But if we're not familiar with them and we don't really understand them, uh, we might fall into believing that these experiences are some sort of insight, which is one reason that it's really helpful to check in with an experienced teacher because we can kind of get caught up in uh, wanting these experiences, you know, if they're really pleasant, looking for them, uh, working in ways we may or may not recognize to try to arouse them, and get caught up in a little bit of a you know, spiritual uh, merry-go-round. We're kind of orbiting around this experience that we felt was very special, very pleasant. I remember years ago when, um, during the time that I spent as a nun in Burma, uh, in the in the months that when I had first arrived there, um, there was this huge adjustment process. You know, as you might imagine, just to you know the culture shock of living in Burma and the very different. Um, standard of living, uh, the climate, the food, and everything, adjusting to all of that. Um, There was the whole etiquette of being ordained as a nun for the first time, and there's this whole kind of, you know, culture and, uh, you know, uh, just system of etiquette, you know, standards of behavior that you need to learn for how to conduct yourself that was all very foreign to me. 
And then on top of all that, you know, trying to do this practice intensively, which as we know, even here, you know, is hard enough as it is. So the first couple of months that I was there were just really difficult, you know, just really unpleasant. But, you know, I plugged away as best I could, you know, just like you guys are doing here, just tried to follow the instructions as best I could, same style of practice. And little bit by little, my concentration did grow, did build. Until at one point, I started to have an experience that was very delightful, where I would sit down, I would focus on the breath a little bit, my concentration would get stronger, and then I would start to be bathed in just a beautiful, radiant white light. <laughs> you know, very much kind of like when you see on TV, their depictions of, you know, these life-after-death experiences that some people describe, you know, just the white light coming, and lots of comfort and bliss in the body, the mind really just content and pleasant. And over a period of a couple of weeks, this experience started to become very stable, and then it became kind of my dominant experience in the meditation. So, you know, I'd go, I'd sit down on the cushion, and after a few breaths, there it would be. That just started to be kind of the only thing that was going on. And I would go in and report all of this to my teacher, you know, just as we do here. We'd have, you know, just short five, ten-minute interviews, and I would tell him about the light and the comfort and the bliss and, you know, all of that. And he would just kind of be like, hmm. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, he just didn't really want to let on how special my experience was. You know, he didn't want me to get too full of myself, so he's just playing it cool, you know. Um, but, you know, day after day, you know, I'd go in and see him and report this, and he was just, you know, persistently underwhelmed by what I was experiencing. <laughs> Until one day I went in and I started to give my report, you know, same thing, light, light, bliss, yada, yada, yada. And he just held up his hand and he said, stop. You know, he's one of the, the junior monks. He spoke a little bit of English, but not perfectly. He just said, stop. Where do you think this is getting you? <laughs> and oh, I was just crushed. You know, it was so embarrassing. It was so mortifying. In part, because if I was really honest with myself, you know, I knew. I knew what was going on. I wasn't really learning anything within this experience. Uh, as pleasant as it was, you know, as special as it was, I was really just kind of hanging out and enjoying it, which is, you know, perfectly natural for us to get hooked by that kind of experience, whether it's just a subtle one or whether it's a really dramatic one. When that kind of uh, delightful experience comes along, of course we're going to bite. But so it's really helpful to have a good spiritual friend, to have a teacher that can point this out to us you know, so that we can move on you know, which I eventually did, and my practice moved into other areas. So we may misinterpret psychological openings as insights. Uh, we may misinterpret these strong concentration experiences as insights. Um, another thing that can happen is that we get caught up in, in looking for or striving for um, a level of insight that's just not there yet, just isn't, hasn't come to us yet. We can get caught up in trying to reach to some place in practice that we think we'd like to be or that we think we ought to be by now, for goodness sakes, you know. It's so natural that when we hear about the Four Noble Truths, you know, we really just want to go straight for the third one, you know. We'd really like to skip the first two, <laughs> if at all possible. But the, the fact is that this is just not the way that there's this process unfolds. You know, we've got to put in our time uh, with those first two noble truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of all the ways that the mind causes us suffering. If we get caught up in trying to skip over those really critical parts of the path, then we may miss exactly what is here in this moment, which may be, you know, exactly what we need to learn at this point where we are. I'll just end with a story that I first heard from Kamala many years ago. I think it might have been on the first three-month retreat that I did here, which I've just found tremendously helpful in keeping myself on track in the practice, keeping things in perspective. So it's said that a young man approached a great master and asked to become his student and learn his art. How long, asked the prospective student, will it take me to become a master like you? Hmm. Ten years, replied the master. Oh, so long, exclaimed the student in dismay. Well, in your case, considered the master, uh, maybe 20 years. <laughs> 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 
the young man was alarmed, but he persisted. You know, what if I practice day and night, in every waking hour, devoting all of my energy to this practice, to mastering this art? 30 years, replied the master. The young man now began to become angry. He, he shouted to the teacher, you're talking nonsense. How can it be that if I work harder, it will take longer to achieve my goal? The master just said simply, if you have one eye fixed on your destination, then you have only one eye left with which to find your way. So no matter how much we've read and heard about you know, the theory and philosophy of the Four Noble Truths and meditation and insight, uh, no matter how many years we've been sitting on this cushion, you know, coming to these retreats, we still have to just keep showing up in the present moment and being mindful of what's right in front of us, just what's here, just what's arisen, what's already here. This is true if it's your first retreat, your very first time trying this out. This is true if it's your 20th retreat and you've been at this for years. It doesn't change. There just is no other way. There is no other path to freedom. The Buddha said, this is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, and for the attainment of enlightenment, namely, mindfulness. So let's just sit for a moment. In the seen is only what is seen. In the heard is only what is heard. In the sensed is only what is sensed. In the cognized is only what is cognized. This is how you should train yourself. When for you there is only what is seen in the seen, only what is heard in the heard, only what is sensed in the sensed, only what is cognized in the cognized, then you will not be with that. When you are not with that, then you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then you will be neither here, nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.